0: Listening to
1: Ohio V The World, an Ohio history podcast, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Stream and donate to the show at
2: OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty.
3: Hey everybody, welcome back to episode 14, Ohio versus Suffrage. It's the second to last episode of the of the season, so we've had so much fun here in season 3. Thanks again to our episodes that are being brought to you uh, with the support of GoBus. Go to RideGoBus.com. The Intercity Bus Service here in Ohio has been so helpful, um, and we're so glad they were able to support us here in season 3. In 2019, it's the 100th anniversary of of the 19th Amendment, the centennial celebration. We'll talk about the centennial celebrations that are happening here in Ohio in 2019 when we sit down with Megan Wood from the Ohio History Connection. But our main guest today to talk about suffrage, we'll be talking about Harriet Taylor Upton uh, and the Ohio suffrage movement with our friend Lisa Wood, also from the Ohio History Connection. No relation. Uh, Lisa has been on the show before, and we're so glad to have her back. And we'll talk about the national suffrage story of how women got the right to vote. It wasn't given to them. They took it. Um, And we'll talk about that entire process in the 19th and early 20th century with our friend Emily Krishbaum. Uh, Emily spent 10 years as an American history professor at Ashland University in Ohio uh, before moving on to the private sector. But she was just one of my favorite interviews of the year. Uh, And she'll break down the national suffrage movement. Um, as we go from Ohio and this to you know a show that we like to think, even though it's called Ohio View the World, really is an American history show. And today is is a great indication of that. In um, show news, we are featured in the Columbus Alive this week. Um, uh, five things we love talking about Ohio history and some other stuff, some playoff hockey with my Columbus Blue Jackets, and some of the other things that we're interested in. So. Go to columbusalive.com and look that up, the five things uh, we love with Alex Hasty. Also, the listenership is has really been skyrocketing here in the second half of, of season three. Episodes like our Jim Trafficking episode, the Burning River episode was listened to by almost more than any episode we've ever had, and our Conspiracy episode from, from last time also very popular. So thanks again. You guys are clearly sharing the show with your friends and keep it up. Uh, rate and review us on iTunes. that's always super helpful. Uh, the last little bit of news we have is season four. It's going to be coming out in August of 2019 uh, probably towards the end of the month. We'll get you an exact date on that on that launch um, and most likely we'll be opening season four. the premiere will be a live episode. So look for more news on that. We need our fans to come out and see us uh, at the end of the summer and we'll get you some more info on that hopefully. Uh, as the summer moves along Our beer for the episode We're going to spend a lot of time today in Warren, Ohio Which is known back in the day as the city of modern methods um, And Warren up up by uh, in Trumbull County Was the home of Harriet Taylor Upton She's the, the famous Ohio suffragette that we'll be talking about today um, And we are at modernmethodsbrewery.com The first brewery in Warren, Ohio since the 1880s and it's actually located on a, a place called Dave Grohl Alley. The famous drummer and, and singer from the Foo Fighters uh, actually spent a lot of his childhood in Warren, Ohio. Um, and so their brewery and tap house located on Dave Grohl Alley. And when we were in town, we picked up a, a growler of their sour beer. I'm a big sour beer fan called There Gosa My Hero. Kind of based on that famous Foo Fighters song. Uh, 5.3% alcohol, sour beer with a sea salt, Um, And it says it smells like the ocean is what they say. And it's really good beer. They have good stuff there. Uh, If you're in downtown Warren, go to modernmethodsbrew.com. And again, today we're drinking their sour, the Gosa, uh, called their Gosa My Hero, a play on their Dave Grohl um, connection. So again, thanks to Modern Methods Brewery, another great Ohio brewery. Uh, Today, we had to learn a lot about women's suffrage. Maybe it's just because I'm I'm a male and I just didn't, but I didn't learn it in school. It's very little talked about. You heard the names Elizabeth K. Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, but I really didn't know very much about it. We had to do a lot of research into it. My guests obviously opened my eyes to a lot of really cool stuff. Um, but this is an amazing story of perseverance, dedication, and struggle to get the 19th Amendment passed. And not just by the Congress, but by the 36 states that had to ratify that 19th Amendment uh, when they finally do in 1920. Very cool story. And we'll talk about the Ohio suffrage movement, its triumphs, its failures, uh, and also talk about the national suffrage movement with our guests, Lisa Wood and Emily Krishbaum. So it's been 100 years since women uh, got the amendment passed, the right to vote. Uh, And today we're going to be talking about that journey. It's episode 14. Ohio versus Suffrage.
0: Ohio View the World has been brought
3: to you by GoBus. Hit up RideGoBus.com. Check out their cheap rates and routes all over the Buckeye State. Next time you need a ride around the state of Ohio, whether it's northwest or down the Queen City of Cincinnati, northeast Ohio or southeast Ohio, and all points in between, go to RideGoBus.com. You're always taught in American history class at the Women's Suffrage Movement, the first real event was called you know, the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848 in New York, when Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott, the two uh, pioneers of the movement along with Susan B. Anthony, Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton met actually on a boat going to London. They went to a um, an abolitionist convention, Lucretia Mott, an, an ardent abolitionist, Elizabeth Cady Stanton was actually on her honeymoon, Emily Kirschbaum told us, our guest. But we talk about briefly about the actual Seneca Falls Convention, but really more the backstory of how these two met and how their trip across the pond to London helped spark the women's suffrage movement here in America.
2: Um, there were uh, not thousands, not millions, but uh, mm-hmm. around 100 individuals at the Seneca Falls Convention in Seneca Falls, New York. The two individuals that started this, Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the two of them were abolitionists before they were suffragists, before they were women's rights advocates. As she crosses the pond, she meets Lucretia Mott. And Lucretia Mott is, am I allowed to swear? Yeah. Okay. I, I won't. She's the BA of the abolitionist movement for women, right? Like She is tough as nails. She doesn't wear anything that's cotton and she doesn't serve sugar on her table because those are all products of the institution of slavery. She's on the ship. Elizabeth Kitty Stanton sits down beside her, and she's kind of mesmerized by her and sees her as the ultimate role model and inspiration of what everything a reformer should be. And so she teams with both Acrecia Mott. She's nodding, she's smiling. She agrees with all the things she's saying. They go to the anti-slavery convention. She's really excited to hear everything that Lucretia Mott has to say. These individuals are delegates from the United States on behalf of the abolition movement, which is why they're going. And so they go in and as they're entering in, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott are stopped. And they're like, uh, actually the two of you, because they were women, you you two have to go over here. And what over here was, was behind a curtain. Because at that time, individuals could not be in mixed crowds and women could not speak to mixed crowds. And I'm not saying black and white, I mean men and women. Mm -hmm. So as they're sitting behind a curtain, uh, listening to conversations about the inequality of, or Africans, you know, there's this light bulb that goes off like, wow, this is actually pretty messed up for us. As well.
3: In this episode, we'll kind of bounce back and forth between the Ohio suffrage movement and the national suffrage movement. Um, and our guest Lisa Wood, who we'll have on in a moment, she's going to talk more about the Ohio connections. You know, in 1850, kind of the first real uh, event in women's suffrage here in Ohio, um, there's a meeting in Salem, Ohio, and we actually, to discuss the Constitutional Convention of 1850, they're writing a new constitution. You know, if you're a widow in Ohio back then, you're entitled to one-third of your husband's property. Um, You had no, really no legal rights that we would understand today or that were recognized back then. Um, And it actually does go to a vote. The Constitutional Convention goes to the Ohio legislature, and women's suffrage is voted down 72 to 7 in 1850. So we got a long way to go. But all this momentum from Seneca Falls and, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton in the 1840s and 50s, it all stops because of one event. We talked to Lisa about why the women's suffrage movement was, was stopped in its tracks by the Civil War.
1: The Civil War was a huge national emergency. It's, you you can't overstate the national emergency created by this Civil War. Um, I started thinking about it, and in four years, over 600,000 people died. I mean, that's like 9/11 happening every week for four years. Um, and women were just very, very busy during the Civil War. With so many men serving in the military, there were a lot of jobs that women took over, you know, And if a family ran a small business or a farm, it was up to the women to do it in the absence of their husbands and brothers and sons. And there were jobs men vacated in factories that you know women took over, particularly in the North. Um, they were very arduous and difficult and low-paying. There were new fields, new careers that opened up for women, such as nursing and clerical work. It was a bit controversial for women to become nurses and to go to work in government offices. But... They did it, and they were needed, much needed. There is also the idea that if they criticized the war effort too much, they would be seen as, un or criticized the government. Just criticizing the government during wartime could be seen as unpatriotic. So one of the things that the suffrage leaders did was to form the Women's National Loyal League. And they collected over 400,000 signatures on a petition to pass a constitutional amendment to end slavery. So they didn't stop doing things, not remotely. All this uh, female energy that had been put into the anti-slavery movement and to the suffrage movement before the war was channeled in different directions. Um, But it was just such a huge national emergency.
3: The famous suffragette from Ohio that we're talking about today is Harriet Taylor Upton. Born Harriet Taylor. Uh, She was born in Ravenna in 1853 in Portage County. Moves to Warren, Ohio, when she's seven or eight years old. And it was really her father, uh, Ezra Taylor, who becomes a congressman. He's a judge in Warren, um, who really helps her foray into politics. And he joins Congress after James Garfield uh, relinquishes his Congress uh, position in 1880 when he becomes president. It's Ezra Taylor, Harriet Taylor's father, who moves in. Harriet Taylor... Um, Since his wife has passed away, she really is the one running the household, going to the parties. Um, And Taylor would serve five or six terms in, in Congress, a Republican, as Harriet would also be for the rest of her life. We talk about Harriet Taylor in D.C., growing up in Warren, Ohio, and really how important it was to be from Ohio during the 1870s and 1880s.
1: Her family lived in northeastern Ohio. All of her, uh, all branches of her family immigrated from New England to that northeastern quadrant of Ohio known as the Western Reserve and in her memoir she tells the story of all of her various pioneer relatives coming to to the western reserve her father becomes an attorney he starts his practice in Ravenna and then the family moves to Warren where they reside for, for decades to come in the late 70s he becomes a judge for a common pleas court and then when James Garfield another Ohioan Uh, vacates a house in the US House of Representatives, Harriet says her father was kind of pushed to run by uh, friends and supporters, and so he takes over Garfield's seat in the US House and holds that seat until he retires from Congress in 1892. So he is, you know, I mean the family is very comfortably middle class and the republican party at that time is is known to be a supporter of a lot of different prog- politically progressive things and taylor was always clear that he supported women's suffrage you know when he went to dc to join congress she followed along and at this point, her mother was deceased, and she didn't go to college or to finishing school. So she went with her father. They shared a suite, you know, suite of rooms in boarding houses in DC while they were there, and she worked as his secretary. But she also had a lot of time to um, to socialize with people at the boarding house um, because they were from Ohio. The Taylors had a lot of automatic connections um they got to dc and i mean he's a junior congressman and they were immediately getting invitations to supper at the white house with president and mrs hayes because they were all from ohio um they knew the garfields well uh general james garfield eventually president james garfield and and his wife they they knew them well there were a lot of um there were a lot of really politically connected people from Ohio and D.C. So I think part of her being a well-connected socialite had to do with her dad and part of it had to do with just being from Ohio.
3: At that time, yeah. at
1: that time, there were so many um, powerful co- political leaders and military leaders uh, from Ohio. Um, John Sherman, William Sherman, <laughs> Philip Sheridan—I mean, there were just a lot of, a lot of Ohioans that they kind of had an automatic in, you know, sort of an Ohio club yeah. in, in D.C.
3: Ohio, the power of the Ohio club. You know, we're really starting our story kind of around the times of President Grant from Ohio and Rutherford B. Hayes of Delaware, Ohio, and finishing our story in the 1920s with Marion, Ohio's own Warren Hardy. We have presidents in between Garfield, McKinley, Taft, um, so many others. Benjamin Harrison uh, spent some time in Ohio. So it really was a powerful place. And Harriet Taylor Upton uses that Ohio-ness uh, to her own benefit. You know, the 1870s, we said the, the suffrage movement stopped in its tracks during the war. Well, in the 1870s, it kicks up again. And it's really Susan B. Anthony along with Stanton and others. But Susan B. Anthony is you know, going to Congress every year. Uh, and we actually talk about a story, you know, just about what was going on in the 1870s. If you want to know more, go listen to our episode 10, Ohio versus the Victorian Age. It's about Victoria Woodhull, the first woman to run for president. She runs in 1872. Um, Lisa was our guest on that episode Lisa Wood Um, And it's just a really cool episode She lived a great life Really interesting story So go back to season 1 episode 10 Ohio versus the Victorian age To learn about Victoria Woodhull The first woman to run for president We talk here though about What was called the new departure Was these two suffrage Movements kind of split apart In the time I love the story Where Susan B. Anthony went to vote and she actually was able to vote, only later to be arrested for breaking the law.
2: And as Frederick Douglass would say, until there's a day where white women uh, are afraid of walking down the street, getting lynched, I, I think it's fair to say it's the Negro's hour. So you see Elizabeth Katie Stanton and Susan B. Anthony separate from Lucy Stone and others that are more conservative and saying we need to be prudent, baby steps, better for African American men to have the vote than no one have the vote at all. And Stanton and Anthony really would not stand for that. But the new departure in the 1870s, the idea was the 14th Amendment is all about citizenship, right? If you were naturally born in the United States uh, to that of parents here on the soil, you are a citizen. So Susan B. Anthony's argument was, I was born here. I am automatically a citizen. That my citizenship and my voting rights are synonymous. They go hand in hand with one another. I already have these rights. I might as well register and vote. I don't need a separate amendment. It's automatic. Well, uh, she did register and she did vote. And she also went to jail (laughs) because many disagreed with her.
3: And Harriet Taylor Upton, at first Harriet Taylor, was not a big suffrage advocate as she you know, navigated the D.C. social scene. She was not someone who was, who was always talking about suffrage or maybe even believed in suffrage. But she gets to know Susan B. Anthony. We talked to Lisa Wood about you know her going to hear Susan B. Anthony speak and Warren and how they didn't get off on the right foot. But ultimately, Harriet Taylor would become one of Susan B. Anthony's protégés and become the most powerful figure in Ohio's women's suffrage movement.
1: Been in her teens, late teens, when she went to hear Susan B. Anthony speak in Warren. Her interpretation of it was just that men were being painted with a broad brush as very bad, and she didn't like that. And she, actually, she sits through this lecture and goes and confronts Susan B. Anthony after the lecture and tells her, you know, this is crazy. My father is a wonderful man and my grandfathers and all my male relatives are wonderful. And my, you know, her mother, I'm not, her mother um, was a very smart woman. She's like, you know, everyone, tr- my, everyone within our family treats each other well. And, you know, she, her example though, you know, as a very young woman, is primarily her family, and what she's describing is, you know, the personal dynamics of their household, which was egalitarian and pleasant. And Susan B. Anthony tells her, you know, you aren't the only child in the world. Your men are not the only men in the world. I'm not talking about your family. I'm talking about man-made laws that oppress women. And she, she doesn't, she doesn't get it initially.
3: Colorado actually ratifies suffrage uh, for women in state voting in 1893. It's pretty early. It's, it's some 27 years before the National Amendment would be fully ratified. We talked to Emily Krishbaum just about why were these Western states, because other states after Colorado would follow suit. What was it about the Western states that allowed women's suffrage to be much more accepted and happened much earlier than it would in the North, in the East, and certainly in the South?
2: There are a lot of different interpretations of this. So one, some would say, Look, the Western states, they want to get greater political representation, and so they'll accept anyone, right? We'll give dogs votes if it means we can have a greater presence in Congress. One interpretation I actually think makes a lot of sense is that if you think of frontier life, if anybody played the Oregon Trail back in the day, oh, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? And you, and you want to caulk the river, forward the river, and make sure you don't die of, I don't know, Alex, what was one of the main... Cholera was Cholera. Always, you know, yeah, I've known to have cholera. Uh, that you need everyone to pitch in. And so the frontier, in a sense, stripped away the hierarchy or maybe gender roles that you would see so prominently established in the South or in the North. And because it was more egalitarian when it comes to work, I think it was much easier to then translate that to political rights as well. I think the other thing you could say, too, is much of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony's arguments was... Look, if you're afraid of African-Americans gaining any sort of power and prominence, then you provide white women the right to vote as well, which will counter any sort of racial power. It's not the most beautiful part of our history, but it is a true part of our history.
3: The Ohio Women's Suffrage Association was started in 1870, and it's an organization that ultimately Harriet Taylor Upton would take control of. But becoming a suffragette did not happen overnight for her again, it's her, you know, over a decade in, in D.C., and she comes back later. But we talked to Lisa just about her first step, Harriet Taylor Upton, the subject of, of today's show, her first steps into becoming the suffragette and the most famous suffrage figure from the state of Ohio.
1: The first time she officially joins a suffrage organization was when she was elected to be the head of a local suffrage club in Warren. This was in 1891, and she claims she didn't really want to be in charge and that her husband wouldn't like it but apparently he gets over it and she accepts the job and that pretty much defines her life for (laughs) for decades going forward and then um She joins, the next thing that she does is there's, she's always in some kind of executive committee or executive role. So in 1896, she joins um, what it was called the Congressional Committee. And this is a group that was part of the National Suffrage Association, the National American Women's Suffrage Association. And Susan B. led this group for years and years and years. And she joins in 1896. And essentially, they just, like clockwork, went to Congress and lobbied every year for a suffrage amendment. And they did this for decades. And it made little dent for a very long time, but, um, for, but they did it.
3: You know, Ohio constitutional amendment activities, they fail in 1888, uh, 1900, 1897, 1898. Women, you know, they can't be even notaries in in Ohio, um, according to the Ohio Supreme Court, because they're not electors. All kinds of different property rights that they did not have, either as widows or over their children's money. um, Those things slowly begin to change. But We talk to Lisa Wood from the Ohio History Connection just about the early Ohio movement and Harriet Taylor Upton, how she gets it started uh, in Warren, Ohio.
1: And... She eventually becomes the president of the Ohio Woman Suffrage Association in 1899. She holds that job from 1908. There's a three-year gap, and then from 1911 to 1920, she is again in in charge of the Ohio Woman Suffrage Association. And she's in charge during that that period from 1911 to 1920 is is just really key. Um, cause that's when kind of the dam breaks for suffrage and all over the country, um, the whole movement is gaining momentum. Um, Ohio, Ohio was, there was a great deal of activity in Ohio and Harriet was responsible for, or certainly at the heart of all of it. Um, there doesn't, the strange thing is that for all the suffrage campaigns, for all the parades, for all the suffrage tours and meetings and speaking on soapboxes and marching to the state house, we didn't actually get suffrage in Ohio before the national amendment
3: passed. I found from from researching Ohio's suffrage story is really that the National Women's Suffrage Association, the national movement, would be housed in Warren, Ohio, thanks to Harriet Taylor Upton. Um, She served on the executive committee. She was the treasurer um, from 1894 to 1910, and the entire headquarters is moved to Warren, Ohio. We talked to Lisa about this little-known fact of the national women's suffrage movement based in Ohio for many years.
1: Harriet was also, for many years, the treasurer of the National Group, and from 1903, like this period, it's like from 1903 to 1910, maybe, she actually was running the National Association out of the Warren County Courthouse which you know she was editing the newsletter and managing the finances and things all from warren ohio and some people have wondered well how how did that work how could this national advocacy group actually be effective working out of the courthouse in warren county ohio uh or warren ohio trumbull county courthouse and it was probably a financial decision really um it probably wasn't in terms of efficiency, the the greatest thing, but the suffrage. I mean, this is mostly unpaid labor done on a shoestring budget. Yeah, so no it's probably just something that it was convenient for her, and she was willing to do all this work.
3: So, and in the eighteen nineties, there is some partial suffrage, I guess you would call it, that comes available to women in Ohio. Basically, women are allowed to run for and vote in school board elections. Lisa would tell us also the library board was available to be voted on. But we asked Lisa, you know, as Harriet Taylor Upton would become a school board member in the city of Warren, Ohio, you know, why what, why were they allowed to vote and participate and serve on school boards throughout the state?
1: This was, this was a small step. And, and some suffragists some suffragists were more excited about partial suffrage than others on one hand harriet taylor upton was never a huge fan of partial suffrage like we won it all on the other hand she was really excited to run for school board um and it was interesting because she was in warren she was not the only woman there were five there were four seats five candidates two men won and two women won. There was her and a woman named Carrie Harrington. And she, it was kind of nice to not be the only woman because it makes you a little less novel. You're not just a token. Um, And she found working with her colleague, uh, Carrie Harrington, very rewarding. The idea was that women, because they are, they are the primary caregivers for children. And you know, for many decades had been children's primary teachers when children didn't necessarily go to schoolhouses when they were educated more at home. So it was kind of an extension of that mothering role to be part of the school board. But even so, the whole idea of separate spheres of public spaces and private spaces and women being relegated to the private spaces and men to the public spaces, that was so ingrained in Victorian America and Victorian culture That even this idea of women being on the school board was and running for school board and was still very, very controversial. And. in 1895, the constitutionality of the law was challenged. The Supreme Court said, no, no, it's, it's constitutional because it says qualified electors in the Constitution. Qualified electors can be male or female. It doesn't say male electors. It says qualified electors. So it was constitutional for women to vote. Um, in Toledo, women who wanted to register to vote in school board elections were actually harassed. Um, by the the registrars at, when they went mm. to to register. Um, a woman, there was an activist from Toledo, Pauline Steinem, she ended up um, running for a school board position in Toledo. And it was actually in the the brief gap from 1908 to 1911 that Harriet was not the president of the Ohio Women's Suffrage Association. It was Pauline Steinem that was in charge for Any those three And In relation to Gloria Steinem? Her grandmother. Oh, wow. Her, her grandmother, yes.
3: Thanks for listening to Ohio V. The World. Every episode this season, we will bring you an Ohio History Connection Minute that is highlight the work being done to spark discovery of Ohio's stories. The Ohio History Connection, formerly the Ohio Historical Society, preserves and shares the history of the state of Ohio. In each episode, we'll talk with an employee of the OHC or someone from the over 50 sites we manage across the Buckeye State. I urge you to visit our museum, the Ohio History Center in Columbus, and become a member. Go to ohiohistory.org join. So thanks for listening, hope to see you at the History Center this year, and go to ohiohistory.org slash join for membership info. In this week's Ohio History Connection Minute, we'll sit down with Megan Wood, the Director of Museum and Library Services at the Ohio History Connection. She's been on the show before, she does such a great job over there, It's taken on even a bigger leadership role uh, throughout the organization. Megan joined us to talk about her testimony before the Ohio Senate last month in March about the Ohio Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission, uh, which is passed the Senate, looks like it it will become a thing here in Ohio, basically to oversee different suffrage and centennial uh, women's voting events, forums, um, throughout the state. Megan testified in front of the Senate why this would be important, um, along with Secretary of State of Ohio and a couple other folks. But we talked to her first just about the anniversary and why it is important to, to mark something like this, the centennial of women's suffrage here in Ohio.
0: This anniversary is an opportunity to have us to springboard into a conversation about women's contributions for the last one hundred years. So there's the contributions of women to women and men to get the nineteenth amendment passed, women the right to vote, and then what has happened since then and um, and I know we're thinking about also like what are women doing in leadership and activism right now, and what's the history of that? So an anniversary is always a moment to pause and uh, highlight something. But then just with all the attention on um, more women running in office, more women being seated in an office in Ohio, it's a really it's a contemporary issue as well. Um, so it just really get, lets us um, shine a spotlight on probably women that people don't know as much about and even to discover stories that we haven't found or haven't told yet.
3: And like we said on my birthday, March 27th, Megan uh, spoke before the Senate as they considered Senate Bill 30 to create the Ohio Women's Suffrage uh, Centennial Commission. We talked to her just about that testimony um, and what kind of the feeling was from the Senate about creating this, this commission.
0: Uh, uh, one of the things in my testimony was a woman um, in the 1820s in Cincinnati who had a nickname, the Red Harlot, because she was um, she was talking about stuff and so scandalous. And I, you know, made some comment about, well, yeah, that's often uh, what would happen to women who spoke out is that you're. Um, given bad nicknames and you know some things never change right but the secretary of state he also testified and talked very eloquently about like thinking about his daughters and the future and there was a lot of questions about how we get students involved um, how we make sure that it's a diverse celebration um, because the suffrage movement did you know suffer like many things in the early 20th century from racism and exclusion of women of color
3: lastly we, we talked to megan just about the rollout Uh, You know, there's going to be a hashtag that people will be able to use for, you know, the 100th anniversary of of women's voting in Ohio. Um, So if you have any great ideas, you can send them to us. uh, Just like you send your show ideas to ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. I can pass those on to Megan and and the rest of the commission. um, Just if you have any ideas. But she wants to avoid using the word suffrage in, in any of the hashtag because that word can be confusing. I remember my wife, Miss Ohio v. The World, and I actually looked up what the word suffrage meant. I knew it meant voting in some kind, but uh, she talks about a really funny funny skit done in the late 90s, early 2000s, with Jimmy Kimmel and Adam Carolla on The Man Show, when they talked about repealing women's suffrage because of people's confusion with the word what suffrage actually meant.
0: Uh, You know, we've talked about something the word suffrage can be problematic because people don't know what it means. So we've talked about like uh, Ohio Women Vote or Ohio Vote 100 or something, you know, uh, something that's not too many characters and maybe doesn't say suffrage, but talks about voting. Um, I don't know if there's an episode of the man show where they were petitioning <laughs> they were petitioning to end women's suffrage that women have been suffraging for almost 100 years and people were signing the petition yeah. they were really mad so
3: and thanks again to Megan Wood for joining us from the Ohio History Connection to talk about the Ohio Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission uh, looks like that's going to happen and should be a great way to help people celebrate the impacts of not just women's suffrage, but women as politicians, as as voters, uh, over the last hundred years and and more. A great event occurred on March 3rd, 1913, when the Women's March uh, on Washington, the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. It would overshadow Wilson's inauguration as what appears to be, we'll show you pictures of it, in some of our posts this week, while we promote the episode, I mean, 100,000 people blocking the streets. Alice Paul, uh, you know, is the one who set up this event. Harriet Taylor Upton is there leading the Ohio delegation. But we talked with Emily Krishbaum about that march, a famous moment in women's history here in the United States. Uh, reminds me much like the, the Women's March in 2017, the day after President Trump's inauguration. This was actually the day before. Uh, The police are are supposed to escort them to the street, but there's too many people. And after just a few minutes, the police escorts just kind of disappear into the crowd. And the women are left to march on their own. Women from almost every state show up, every delegation. We talk with with Emily Krishbaum about the famous Women's March of 1913.
2: Woodrow Wilson, uh, one of his most notorious quotes is that women's suffrage is the root of all evil. (laughs) Okay, Uh, He ran as a democrat and anti-suffrage and this is not well everybody ran anti-suffrage This is isn't true right teddy roosevelt was fine with women's suffrage and when wilson was pressed about how he felt about women's suffrage he's like well i haven't really thought about that which is what i think most people respond when they don't have an answer to the question or diplomatically trying to avoid said question so Alice Paul and the National Women's Party, among other suffragists, thought it would be a great idea to have a parade, or I would actually argue a march, to move the spotlight away from Wilson when he shows up the day before his inauguration at the train station. No one is there to greet him. And Wilson, as probably a lot of elected officials at that level, you know, are expecting a little pomp and circumstance. There was little of that because so many people were gathered for this parade, and I think these women were trying to make their presence known. Were trying to show their um, lack of agreeance of who was recently elected, but I also think by that point in the movement, conservatism had gave way to a bit more radical moves. And presence, public presence was necessary. And so while I get goosebumps thinking about, you know, being the woman on the white horse that is leading this march or being one of the individuals proclaiming by banner or simply by presence that they deserve this voice in this government just as much as anyone else, I think it would have been incredibly terrifying Um, There were investigations after the march because of the amount of violence that was inflicted upon the women that were marching and the things that happened there. So romantically, yes, I would definitely want to be there. Realistically, I would have been pretty terrified. But uh, it's incredibly courageous and bold what these women did.
3: One thing we noticed studying the women's suffrage movement was the lack of inclusion of African-American suffrage advocates. Who do march in in the Washington march? They're told to march at the back. Some do, some don't. There's so much chaos in that march. Um, but Emily, we asked Emily Krishbaum, and she confronts it head on. You know about why these women who were who were disenfranchised, fighting to enfranchise themselves, uh, didn't want to include the African American women in the in their uh, in their main movement. Surely they supported. They had their own events. They marched in 1913 with them. Um, again, they're relegated to the back. But why would somebody who's trying to enfranchise not want to enfranchise everybody?
2: I think there's been a very long conversation, a necessary conversation to have about the narrative of American women's history and the lack of African-American women in that history. In the sense that when well, going back to Sojourner Truth, right, her saying, aren't I a woman? when most women, i.e. white women, women are considered these rather fragile and docile creatures that need to be taken care of.
3: This Victorian image.
2: Yes, right, and and they are the righteous and the more moral and the more upright, and they're the ones that rear the children and should be protected. Well, who's protecting these slave women? I think regardless of how progressive any individual white, female suffragists was in the 19-teens, they also wanted to be incredibly prudent and use every event to their benefit. This is not me excusing. This is me acknowledging. And it was, and and mind you, this is also 1910s of of Woodrow Wilson playing Birth of a Nation in the White House, right? Mm. One of the most racist films in our history and saying this is historically accurate. Uh, Anyways, right? So this is what they're dealing with. And so even those that were progressive, not suggesting all of them were, they were prudent in the sense that, look, it's going to be challenging enough to get women's right to vote, much less if we suggest that this is an uh, anti-sexist and racist initiative. With all of that being said, because of that, in these marches, uh, white female leaders would either say you're not allowed to participate or if you did you need to be at the back
3: you can't talk about suffrage and the 19th amendment in america without talking about alice paul and her radical national women's party we talked with emily Kirschbaum about alice paul who brought these tactics from england these more aggressive tactics that she learned um, from the british women's suffrage movement she brings them to the united states She leads that march in 1913 and takes a much more aggressive stance in the 19-teens with President Wilson to get women the right to vote.
2: I'm not sure they would have been successful if it wasn't for both of them coexisting in the sense that Carrie Chapman Catt of the NAWSA was very old school, right? State by state strategy, a little bit more patient, a little older. Drinking tea with President Wilson. Is today the day, Wilson? <laughs> no, today is not the day, Carrie. You know, okay. And they'd finish their tea and she would walk away with her big, beautiful hat, right? Whereas Alice Paul comes on the scene. And I actually like to compare it to SNCC of the civil rights movement. You have this younger generation of activists who are a bit more radical. And they don't really understand why things are the way that they are, because they were not born and raised into a culture to accept Jim Crow or to accept these gender norms. Right. Alice Paul is uh, past coming of age is actually, you know, in her young adulthood during the time of the new woman, where you could have your hair be short. You could show your wrists and your ankles.
3: My, My word.
2: Oh, my word. I'm blushing as we speak. Um, And it it was considered fine. So this idea of a Victorian woman and a woman woman needing to be in the home, I, I just don't think it computed for her. She, influenced by the British movement, decided that she would be more radical, have a public presence to force Wilson to change his mind.
3: And Harriet Taylor Upton did not get along that great with Alice Paul. Harriet was an establishment member of the suffrage movement. Um, there's two different organizations. You know, She was part of the National Women's Suffrage Association and Alice Paul with her at NWP, the National Women's Party. Um, we talked with Lisa Wood just briefly about you know why were these differences between, not just those two groups, but between these two women, Harriet Taylor Upton from Warren, Ohio, and national suffrage leader, Alice Paul.
1: The biggest problem I think Harriet probably had with with alice is first of all harriet has a very long history with the national suffrage organization that alice paul does not i mean harriet went to congress with susan b anthony in 1896 to lobby for a national amendment and alice acts like nobody had ever thought of this idea before That's she true, walks true. into town in, around like 1912 1913 yeah. and i mean that was one of the major. Sp- arguments with this they argued over tactics for for decades and there were the people who said we should go state by state and then there were people that said no national amendment is the better path
3: at the heart of all these discussions and these votes you look at Ohio in, in 19, 1914, a massive suffrage parade in Cleveland in October of 1914. Uh, Lisa will talk about a big march they had in 1912 in Columbus. But a lot of these situations, the Brewers Association gets involved in temperance, in the wet-dry movement, the prohibition movement that was afoot, especially in Ohio. Go back and listen to you know one of our first episodes, episode three, Ohio versus Booze. Our first season, we go to Westerville and visit the Anti-Saloon League Museum and talk about why prohibition was Ohio's fault. Well, prohibition in in the dry movement here also is what held up, I think, and Lisa tends to agree, also held up suffrage amendments and constitutional amendments uh, from being passed by the legislature or the voters. The fact that these female voters and suffrage advocates didn't really seem to care, you know, one way or the other on on the wet-dry issue, but they were always tied the prohibition issue. And the brewers were the ones who did that. We talk about the the suffrage movement versus the brewers in Ohio uh, with Lisa Wood.
1: The temperance movement is the other big social cause that draws in many, many women. In fact, the temperance movement drew in more women than, than the suffrage movement did. And Ohio is ground zero for the temperance movement. But it is really becomes very impossible in Ohio to separate suffrage from temperance. And in 1912, there there are a lot of amendments that are going before voters at the fall election. And suffrage is one of 41 different amendments that are up to be voted on. Yeah,
3: was it was a number 23 or something? Yes, nice. Amendment
1: 23. Thank you. Yes, it's a good, good number, 23. <laughs> And the problem, and Harriet Taylor Upton, she had a plan. She started the campaign to win in 1911. She started working on this before the Constitutional Convention was held. She made sure, I mean, she was lobbying delegates before they got to the convention. So she had a great plan and a great strategy. but. In nineteen twelve the convention ends and they're going into summer and this is the intent, most intense part of the campaign. She's got twenty three dollars in her treasury. Yeah. The Brewers Association threw something like six hundred thousand into their anti-suffrage campaign. They just they had a lot more money. And it was just so it was really it was really difficult. Um, yeah. Money in politics is is not a new thing. Um, what's really, what's truly amazing is what the suffragists did with with the money they had. Um, the the sheer energy and unpaid labor that went into their 1912 campaign is is amazing. But ultimately, they could never they they could never really separate themselves from temperance. And part of the reason it was difficult is because they sometimes needed temperance women. Um, during Centennial Week, it was the Columbus Centennial. It was the Ohio State Fair. It was this week in late August. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, for fun, they stage a big suffrage parade on a Tuesday morning. <laughs> and for, somewhere between four and 6,000 women march in the suffrage parade. And a lot of them were active suffragists, but... Tem- when they needed to stage a parade and they wanted thousands of people to show up, there were always more women who were members of the Temperance Organization. Yeah. So they, they, they could use their help.
3: In Ohio in 1912, a, a ballot initiative goes before the voters to, to give grant women suffrage in the state of Ohio. And it's a, it's a statewide movement that's run by our Harriet Taylor Upton. And, and we'll talk to Lisa about that campaign. But ultimately, Amendment 23 loses, and it loses on a lot of of Southern Ohio women, or Southern voters, I should say, that voted down, Southern Ohio voters. Um, 24 of the 88 counties do vote for it, but almost all of those are in the Northwest and Northeast Ohio. We talked with Lisa just about the campaign in in 1912, a statewide campaign that lost by 85,000 votes.
1: If you can get enough signatures on a petition, you can get something on the ballot to put before voters. So that's what they do in 1914. They need 130,000 signatures, they get 131,200 something signatures. They get enough. And they deliver them themselves to the State House. And I mean, so 1914, they, they carried the petitions to the state house and you know they had a huge rally on the state house steps everyone was in white they had all the county delegations with their banners the secretary of state decided to skip out of the capitol that day so he wasn't there to take the petitions and so she carries them down to the secretary of state's office and they get piled on the floor but the initiative gets on the ballot and it gets defeated again (laughs) in 1914.
3: And as the women's suffrage movement uh, is slowed in Ohio and across the country, this is where we start to see a pickup by the national movement. Alice Paul and her and her followers began picketing the White House, doing it during World War One. it's unheard of. And people turn against them, they can't believe that's unpatriotic to be challenging the president like this. But she doesn't care. They've had enough uh, of waiting and being patient. And this is such an important movement that Alice starts. We talked to Emily Krishbaum about the White House picket movement.
2: Picketing uh, the White House, picketing a wartime president has never been a very popular move. Right. But it, it's so important to think that World War One, when you think of Woodrow Wilson and the reason why we fought in World War One, his key phrase was a war for democracy. Yeah, right. And it's like, I I can think of just Alice Paul, a war for democracy. Are you kidding me? 51% of the population does not have a voice, Mr. President, take the beam out of your own eye. And that was what one of the banners said, as they protested, uh, and picketed the White House 24 hour. Woodrow Wilson looks out of the Oval Office and sees these women and he's like, well, winter's coming. Very Game of Thrones, right? Timely. Winter's coming, right? They'll get cold. They'll go home. Well, they didn't go home. And the only way he was able to get them removed was by police. And they were charged with obstructing traffic. As yes,
3: they... blocking the sidewalk.
2: But she and her uh, colleagues went to jail. And uh, Alice Paul engaged in a hunger strike.
3: Woodrow Wilson begins arresting these women. And people are happy about it. They're arrested for blocking the sidewalk. Um, they really aren't doing anything illegal. Alice Paul and her followers are arrested for expressing their rights. And this is when the public sentiment begins to turn. Because as they start doing longer and longer jail sentences on these bogus charges, it's not just the bogus charges that, that come into play. It's the treatment in the jail. The women are, are you know, Alice Paul goes on a hunger, famous hunger strike, asks do some of her other followers, but they're also mistreated, you know, made to stand up for 20 hours a day um, and not allowed to sleep, all kinds of mental torments that their jailers are putting them through. All that becomes public, and everything turns against Wilson uh, and the women's suffrage movement and the national press and the national sentiment becomes the sympathetic victim. And slowly the tide turns. We talked to Emily Kirschbaum about that tide turning in, 19, in 1918.
2: But it's bad press, right? For the government and for this jail. And so they force feed her um, with other women. However, what ends up happening though, is this information gets out and it gets out to the husband of one of those that was in prison. And this goes out to the newspapers. And so you have this juxtaposition of the alleged inferiority and fragility and piety and morality of women, and this gruesome and horrific treatment of those same women. And you cannot reconcile them, right? I think the sacrifice of the National Women's Party and what they were able to bring to light of the conditions in the jail for them simply voicing their opinion and their protests during this war for democracy in addition to Carrie chapman Cat's persistent meetings with the president inevitably forces him to go before Congress and say, we have made women our partners in life and in this war and should that not be reflected in politics as well. That's not verbatim, right? But I, I really do believe it was the radical and this conservative coming together so the bad press and the persistence coming together to make this happen.
3: Ultimately- Wilson
2: ends up putting his support during World War I behind women, goes to Congress and says, yes, I am for women's suffrage.
3: suffrage in Ohio begins to to gain uh, momentum as well. In 1917, the Senate, the House, and Governor James Cox actually pass it. Um, But it gets sent to the voters. And yet again, it it loses um, almost a million, I think, just under a million votes. But about 56% to 44% of the state decides, again, and it's wrapped up in this whole issue with Dries um, and the war, but it fails again to the Ohio electorate. But by 1919, after Wilson comes out in favor of it, they actually pass it in the, Ohio, the U.S. Senate. It passes the House, um, and it, actually it's an amendment, so it passes the Senate. It's got to pass by two-thirds majority, and it does. On June 4th, 1919, uh, 66 to 30 was, was the final vote, and Harriet Taylor Upton was there. We talked with Lisa Wood about the passage of the 19th Amendment in June of 1919 and what it meant to Harriet Upton when she walked out of the Capitol building.
1: Yeah she was there and her first thought is that her life battle is over but she didn't I guess she was in a bit of shock and she didn't really feel She didn't really hit her. And then she starts to leave and she's walking with some other ladies who were with, you know, other activists who were there as well. And then somebody talks, you know, somebody grabs her hand and and says something about, you know, about the, you know, what's happened and then it starts to hit her and then she starts to cry and she's not a crier. So she, you know, stands aside to kind of to get her bearings, but It was a huge change because she says 25 years or more fighting nearly every day, not now and then, but always, and fighting for a great principle. And she starts to think about the people who were there in the beginning. You know, she starts around 1888. She goes to her first kind of, well, not maybe her second temperance, her second uh, suffrage meeting, 1888, and then 1891. She's head of the Warren Suffrage Club. So, I mean, but a lot of the people like Susan B. Anthony ha- was deceased.
3: Twelve days after the, the 19th Amendment is passed, it needs to be ratified by 36 states in order to become a constitutional amendment. In Ohio, just 12 days later on June 16th, the Ohio legislature becomes the fifth state to pass the 19th Amendment. You know, Ohio moves moves quickly. To, to ratify the 19th Amendment. And as it goes state by state, as we sl- slowly build towards 36, it takes time. Harry Taylor Upton and, and Carrie Chapman Cat are, are going to different states. They're lobbying uh, Alice Paul. And it's getting to the point now in 1920, the summer of 1920, that it might not get enough states to ratify. They need 36 and they're stuck at 35. Everyone converges on Tennessee, there's a uh, just a, such a cool story here. We talked to Emily Kirschbaum about the 36th state, the story of Tennessee actually being the one that at the last minute ratifies the 19th Amendment just before the 1920 election. We talked to her about Harry Byrne and his historic changed vote in Tennessee in 1920.
2: This is not simply passed by Congress, but it needs to be ratified by the states, and much like the ERA that was never ratified, never passed, right? never passed. It actually looked like this amendment would not be passed either because you have a number of states that immediately ratify pass, fine. But there are these few states that are lingering and they need those final votes. And so Tennessee is one of the final states, comes down to the state, Harry Byrne is the youngest state legislator in history at the age of 24, right? And there are suffragists that are gathering in the state house, and they have two different colors of roses that they pin on the lapels of the congressmen, and the color of the rose indicates whether they are for or against women's suffrage. And Harry Byrne, according to the flower, on his lapel, suggested that he was against women's suffrage. And all of the women are watching as the votes are cast. And it comes down to Harry Byrne. And he is against. And everyone assumes, well, we'll have to wait for another state. But at some point in between the time that he receives his rose, we're not talking about The Bachelor, (laughs) that he (laughs) receives his rose, and the time that he votes, he gets a telegraph. And it's from his mother. And it says, Harry, be a good little boy and help Mrs. Cat put the rat in ratification. And then it goes something along the lines of, I've heard many of the arguments against and they're very unkind. And Harry Byrne ends up voting for women's suffrage.
3: It passes by one vote.
2: And it passes by one vote. And the irony of this, or the beauty of it, I should say, is when you think back to municipal housekeeping, right, of women rearing, and even back to Abigail Adams and the Republican motherhood and women rearing these righteous citizens who are able to vote in a way that aligns with democratic principles. It just makes me very happy
3: The Equal Rights Amendment, the ERA, which was, I think, proposed in like 1967, still hasn't been ratified by the states. This also took some time, the 19th Amendment, to be ratified by all the states. Now it's a federal amendment, so it was enacted. But in places in the South, uh, places in New England took a few years. Uh, But we talked to Lisa just about how long it took some of these states to even ratify women's suffrage.
1: Because there were states... Um, There were states that didn't ratify immediately. Connecticut, Vermont, and Delaware all ratified within the next three years, but they didn't ratify immediately. And then there's a group of states in the South that didn't ratify for a very long time. Um, Yeah, in fact, Mississippi didn't actually ratify it until 1984. I mean, it was the law of the land, obviously. Women were voting
3: in Mississippi. Women but, yeah. were
1: voting in Mississippi, but Mississippi did not actually ratify it until 1984. There's this group of Southern states where they vote on it in, you know, 1918, 1919, 1920. They they take a pass at voting for on it and they reject it, and then Tennessee votes to ratify, and it becomes the law of the land. But yeah,
3: that's funny. It, yeah. 1984, geez. 1984,
1: they thought they thought they would go back and now's um,
3: the time. Uh, I
1: don't know what inspired them in 1984. Well, I guess
3: uh, <laughs> the vice presidential candidate would have been a woman in 1984. That's right?
1: true. Geraldine Ferraro. Maybe was that was a, it. I d- I have no idea. I doubt <laughs> Mondale and Ferraro took Mississippi. The
3: 1920 elections between two Ohioans. Governor James Cox from Dayton, who we talked about, and Senator from Ohio, Warren G. Harding, the Republican from Marion, Ohio, a seasoned politician, very popular. Uh, but women are able to vote in this November 1920 election. Ohio women come out in, in droves to vote mainly for Harding. Harding wins a huge landslide election. We talked with, with Lisa Wood about why did women you know, join, the, join their male counterparts and flocking to Harding as a candidate um, and just talk about the 1920 election, the first election with a national female presidential vote. We talked to Lisa to just break it down for us.
1: I don't think anyone's gender ever is the only reason they align with a political party. Um, we see, you know, there's a lot of different factors. and. Yeah. The In 1920, both the presidential candidates are from Ohio, strangely. You have the Democratic candidate, James M. Cox, and the Republican candidate, uh, Warren G. Harding. And Harding does enjoy a lot of female support. Um, I think some of that just had to do with how popular he was. Um I mean, he won Ohio, like 60% of the vote in Ohio. And with two candidates from Ohio, the turnout in the presidential election in Ohio was unbelievably high. Harding Harding campaigned against the league joining the League of Nations and his whole slogan was return to normalcy and it was a very comforting slogan and it appealed to a lot of women it appealed to a lot of men I think it
3: could work in the 2020 election as well he
1: is a he is a Harding was just an extraordinarily popular candidate that a lot of that he enjoyed a lot of female support had a lot to do with just his own personal popularity yeah, yeah just his own personal personal popularity and he he had never been Harding kind of he never he never he was really kind of quiet on suffrage until it was really you know until it was clear that it was passing and that it had a lot of national support he was happy to enjoy the support of these female activists and female voters
3: and Harriet Taylor Upton would actually become the vice chair of the Republican National Committee in 1920 and for years after. I mean, probably the most powerful woman in, in politics at that time following the passage of suffrage. You'd see Jeanette Rankin would be elected as a U.S. Congresswoman um, and a few others. But we talked with Lisa just about what, you know, what do you do after you passed it? You know, the National Association of Women's Suffrage, they become the, the League of Women Voters. Um But what do you do now that your entire mission's been solved? We follow Harriet Taylor Upton's career uh, and the career of of female politicians in general following the passage of of the 19th Amendment.
1: Harriet got very involved in the Republican Party. Um, She became a member of the Executive Committee, which she was like the first woman to become a member of a major political party's executive committee. Uh, so that was one of her activities uh she ran for Congress herself in nineteen twenty six She didn't win um which I think is still is is interesting because there was a group there was a there was the the immediate response of a lot of women who had been involved in politics as as advocates for different issues for so many years, I'm a lot. She wasn't the only one who said, Now it's my turn. I want to run. Um, and there weren't, there was a small group of women who got elected in the 20s, but it was not a big group. And the momentum is not sustained. We don't see a growing group of women getting elected to 40s, office in yeah. the 30s and 40s and 50s. We see this small group get elected in the 20s on the coattails of the suffrage movement and we don't see that grow. In fact, it probably even shrinks a bit.
3: As we close here on episode 14, Ohio vs. Suffrage, uh, man, we learned so much stuff. It was really, really eye-opening. And we close here with Emily Krishbaum talking about, you know, what type of message can female voters today take from, from the suffrage movement? Uh, what would these suffrage leaders like Alice Paul think about the state of things today?
2: Women's history is incredibly important and incredibly inspiring, but if all we do is read the history and repeat the history, I think Alice Paul would be pretty pissed off, right? I I think the reason why we have the history is to lay a foundation to position and empower young women and men today to act and to respond to whatever call exists today. Um, So I think I'm actually writing something now about the best way to celebrate women's history is to run for office or to encourage someone to run for office because I don't think... I mean, I I don't want to put words into Alice's mouth, Ms. Paul's mouth, but I don't think that she would have protested in front of the White House had this picket been force-fed so that we can vote solely for men. I think... As much as she changed history, what she would want is for others to do the same. And I don't think that means an entirely female government or an anti-male government or any of those things, but instead one where there is equal representation and inclusivity and diversity that actually reflects the fabric of American society.
3: From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight making history. There's so many books you need to see. I like reading And I like reading. The tip a canoe and tyler to From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue, Edison and a man on the So many books, which will we choose? I like reading.
1: I like reading.
3: Thanks again so much to our guests, Lisa Wood, uh, Emily Krishbaum, who did such a fantastic job, and and our friend Megan Wood talking about the Centennial Commission uh, to celebrate the centennial, 100 years since the passage of the 19th Amendment. We don't have a book for the episode today. We've got a newsletter for the episode. Emily Krishbaum, our guest, runs her own uh, newsletter on female uh, political issues and female political history called Remember the Ladies. You can go to RememberTheLadiesHistory.com to subscribe. I am subscribed to the, to the newsletter. We talked to Emily just about Remember the Ladies, what they do, Um, And why it's important, like I said, we didn't know nearly enough about women's suffrage to do an episode about it uh, even just a few months ago before we started doing all this research. Um, It's just not taught very well in schools. And when you talk to people like Lisa Wood, you talk to people like Emily Krishbaum about it, they make it exciting. Um, This is one of my favorite episodes, this suffrage episode. I thought I learned so much doing it. Um, and to really create an episode that I think sums up the entire suffrage movement is not easy to do. So why don't we learn more about it? And what does Remember the Ladies do at RememberTheLadiesHistory.com to alleviate that, to fix this gap in our history about women's suffrage?
2: And so I think it's very hard for women to understand their history when their history is not being taught. So Remember the Ladies is uh, this project that, encourages a more inclusive history for k-12 through 12, uh, girls and boys and we run these intensive one two day boot camps for school districts because i don't think that we should necessarily put it on the shoulders of a 10th grade history teacher who's also teaching economics and politics and geography and all of the things uh, so instead our experts come in and we help them to easily infuse women's history with the existing narrative and not necessarily changing, though sometimes it does, the narrative, but instead enhances it. Because I believe the sooner that young girls can see it, they can believe it. So that's what we do. You can subscribe to our newsletter by going to remembertheladieshistory.org. And it will immediately pop up. Put that email in. And you can subscribe.
3: Thanks again to Emily for joining us. Uh, she did such a great job. And would love to have her back on the show at some point. Lisa Wood. Uh, her second time on the show. Again, go back and listen to the episode we did with Lisa uh, about Victoria Woodhall, Ohio versus the Victorian Age, back uh, season one, episode 10. Really good stuff. Only one episode left in season three. By far, our, my favorite season we've done of Ohio v. The World. The show has grown so much. Again, check us out at Columbus Alive. We got a nice feature um, in the community section of last week's uh, Columbus Alive. You can go to columbuslive.com to read a little more about it. Uh, again, sign up for Remember the Ladies, remembertheladieshistory.com, Emily Krishbaum's newsletter. Um, and looking forward to uh, going to Ohio History Day, uh, which will be a judge. I think Emily's actually going to be up there being a judge as well, um, where we go and we judge all these history projects and presentations from high school students across the state. It's the state competition, uh, winners going on to the national competition. So that will be next week up at Ohio Wesleyan University. Uh, So learn more about that. If you want to be a judge in the future, it's probably too late now. Um, But next year, they'd always love more judges. It's a really rewarding experience. So you can go to um, look up Ohio History Day or just email me at ohiobetheworld at gmail.com. And next spring, I can get you in uh, to to see these projects and to grade them. Uh, Very fun, rewarding process. So thank you guys so much. One episode left to go, and we'll be going to the Wild West. Really looking forward to this final episode. We'll be talking about the controversial boy general, General George Armstrong Custer. And we'll also do a second story in that episode about the Little Miss Sure Shot. We'll talk about Annie Oakley coming from Dark County, uh, one of the biggest celebrities uh, to ever come out of Ohio. Uh, we'll talk about Ohio versus the Wild West in our next and final episode. Again, season four we're going to be coming back in August of 2019. And season five during 2020 will be our presidential season. So that's kind of the, what's happening with the show. Rate and review us on iTunes, guys. Not enough reviews um, from all our listeners. If you have, you know, even if you've got some criticisms, we've gotten some of that on on iTunes and Stitcher. But rate and review it. It just shows people who are listening. Subscribe to the episode. Also, uh, just subscribe to the the actual podcast. That helps so much. So thank you again. We will see you in two weeks for our final episode on April 28th when we talk about Ohio versus the Wild West. We'll see you guys soon. Ohio View the World is brought to you by GoBus. Hit up RideGoBus.com, and all-ohio bus service. Whether you're going from Cleveland to Cincinnati or the $10 trip from Athens to Columbus, you can recline in their comfy chairs or download our newest episode using their free onboard Wi-Fi. GoBus is the safest and classiest way to travel the Buckeye State. So make sure you check out RideGoBus.com for their routes and their cheap rates that'll get any Ohioan where they need to go in style. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.